While the world's temperature rises, there are scores of scientists around the globe working to study causes and solutions. One scientist in particular has stood out as a pioneer of machine learning in the fight against climate change. This scientist has been successful in building a broader movement, including others like Andrew Ng, Joshua Benjo, Demos Asabis, Jennifer Chase, to champion the amazing possibilities that exist at the intersection of AI and climate. He organized the first ever AI event at the United Nations Climate Change Conference. He was named a top innovator by the MIT Technology Review all before the age of 30. I am, of course, talking about today's guest, David Rolnick. David got his PhD at MIT and is currently professor at McGill University. David, welcome to the show. So great to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for the kind introduction. So happy to have you on and get to chat with you about what is, I mean, easy to argue, one of the most important things that people are working on in AI is helping hopefully solve the climate problem. Now, I imagine you didn't, from your very earliest days, worry about climate change and AI. I'm curious, where did you grow up and how did that lead to your interest in AI and climate change? Growing up, I was interested in a lot of different fields. That hasn't really changed. I spent a lot of time on, on math. I also loved natural history, entomology and ornithology. I spent a lot of time looking at birds and insects. And then in college and, and grad school, I, I worked on math that gradually became more and more connected to, to deep learning, deep learning theory, connections of deep learning with, with computational neuroscience. But I really felt like I should be working directly on climate change. And in some sense, what I am doing now has has come full circle with some of the, the projects that my group works on. We're actually focused on applications of machine learning and AI to, among other things, biodiversity, birds and insects, some of the things that I was first interested in, as well as applications in electricity, grid optimization, materials discovery for, for green chemistry, and a host of other applications associated with climate change mitigation and, and adaptation. You list quite the range of exciting AI directions we could do research on to, to help with fighting climate change. I think it's fair to say most people weren't really aware of all those opportunities until in 2019, you published a paper tackling climate change with machine learning. And your co-authors, of course, included Joshua Benjo, Andrew Ng, Demis Asabis, as well as many others. You got interested in AI and climate change, and then you bring together this large group, very large group, really, for, for a single machine learning paper of highly established researchers together carry this forward. How do you make that happen? I was surprised a few years ago to see that climate change wasn't being talked about as a flagship opportunity for machine learning. The initial goal of the group that I put together was to bring together expertise from many different fields in machine learning, but also in complementary areas like energy and policy and land use, to provide a call to arms for the machine learning community, to describe the opportunities that existed and to showcase the, the terrific work that had already been done in this space, including within movements like climate informatics and computational sustainability. So that initial group became the Climate Change AI Initiative, which I lead together with Priyadonti and Lynn Koch. 
in addition to my group's own research in the area of, of AI and climate change. So the mission of Climate Change AI is to catalyze impactful work at the intersection of climate change and machine learning, which involves a global network of, of experts and stakeholders interested in this area, running events like, you know, you mentioned events at the COP, the UN Climate Change Conference. We also run the Climate Change Workshop Series at NeurIPS, ICML, and iClear. We launched that a couple of years ago, and also resources for, for learning more, like reports and tutorials and webinars. We also recently launched a, a multi-million dollar grants program to fund work in this area, and also to catalyze the creation of, of new data sets. Oh, wow. When you say you launched a new grants program, that probably means that you had to get some funding agency really excited about this. Who, who did you get excited? Huge thanks to Schmidt Futures and the Quadrature Climate Foundation for providing funding for this round of the, of the grants program. Now, in your paper, you actually highlight several directions that people could work on. And it definitely surprised me the wide range of opportunities by thinking hard about climate and machine learning together. Could you maybe describe some of those directions? Absolutely. So the paper, Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, was intended to provide an overview of many different areas and opportunities for AI and machine learning within all the different fields that touch climate change, because there are so many aspects of climate change. Mitigation means reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Adaptation means responding to the effects of climate change. And then also climate science is studying the, the climate itself. So we looked at all of those and also cross-cutting tools that could be relevant in lots of different areas. So the overall themes that we saw for impact for machine learning and AI were in distilling large unstructured data sets into useful information, for example, to guide policy in contexts like pinpoint deforestation or understanding built infrastructure and energy use associated with buildings or highlighting where in corporate financial disclosures, large corporate of text, where was climate relevant information. So really taking something, some massive amount of unstructured data and creating useful insights that could be used to, to guide policy or, or further or further shape decisions. We also saw a lot of applications of machine learning in optimizing complicated systems. So everything from reducing the energy needed to heat and cool buildings, optimizing industrial processes, freight transport, a lot of different applications there. In forecasting, we saw applications in forecasting supply and demand for electricity, even at a minute scale level, which is really important if one's going to integrate further renewables into the grid and reduce the amount of, of surplus power that's being produced. Forecasting agricultural yield in the event of climate-induced agricultural disruption and many other applications. And then we finally saw a number of applications in scientific modeling and discovery. So first in accelerated science, where one can often speed up the process of experimentation by suggesting new experiments that should be tried or new experimental parameters, and the discovery of better battery materials or materials for solar perovskites and photovoltaics, for example. But then also in, in speeding up simulations in contexts like atmospheric physics or aerodynamics of vehicles and other settings where there are very complex physical equations, which we understand extremely well. We're not going to come up with a better model of the Earth's climate using machine learning, but we can speed up pieces of it. It's not that our current understanding of the climate needs machine learning, but it does need some speeding up sometimes to run some of these very time-intensive simulations. So that's, a, that's a, a good application of machine learning as well. I'm actually really curious about that. You're saying we have these good computational models, but machine learning 
could speed up the rate at which we run those models get results back. What's the intuition behind that? How does that happen? Yeah, so some of the biggest computers are being used right now to run physics simulations of things, for example, climate and weather. They require just massive amounts of computational resources to solve these differential equations, encompassing lots and lots of different variables. For example, something that my group works on is fast approximations to radiative transfer, which is a particular physics primitive, which is being used in global climate and weather models. And if we can solve that faster, then we can run these models at much higher resolution, both temporal and spatial resolution, which means that they're much more useful to people, right? You know, if you're a small municipality or region trying to plan for climate change, you want to understand the effects of climate change on you right there, right now, rather than some enormous grid cell, which actually is hundreds of kilometers on a side, which is typically what happens with climate models. Climate change is fundamentally a local issue as well as a global issue. It affects different places very, very differently. So that kind of simulation, speeding that up and making it more feasible to run the physics, but with certain approximations being made, is really an opportunity for machine learning. So should I imagine it in a way where you first run the very expensive calculation several times and then you train a neural network that somehow is more compact than running the full simulation but ends up with the same prediction maybe a day i don't know what time scales this works at but the same prediction while using a lot less computation that's absolutely a goal. One can imagine supervised learning for this. One can also imagine building in various domain constraints from the start if one knows the physical equations that govern the the govern the system. And that is obviously an area of cutting edge research in machine learning, building in physics constraints. And overall, we've just seen a lot of areas where machine learning boundaries, methodological boundaries can be pushed by climate relevant problems. So whether that's in hybrid physical models, incorporating physics-based constraints, or in transfer learning and meta-learning, in uncertainty quantification, a lot of areas where there really is a need in these domain-relevant problems for AI and machine learning to push the envelope. That's interesting. I'm imagining here something where, and I think I saw a paper review yesterday that incorporates constraints, hard constraints in neural network predictions, where you can put a constraint on properties the prediction should satisfy. As I'm imagining, maybe the prediction has to satisfy conservation of energy. Is that a, a good way to think of it? Or Absolutely. It'll depend upon the particular situation, what constraints there are that are relevant. So conservation laws might be relevant in an atmospheric physics situation, but in the setting of the electrical grid, maybe the constraints are that power has to actually obey the laws of electricity. So that was uh, another paper that we put out that was focused on AC optimal power flow, where you have constraints that is this, actually it's a, it's a big non-convex quadratic constraint, which you need to satisfy in order to abide by the laws of electricity. And if you are trying to route power on the electrical grid and you don't do that, then the lights go out. So obviously you need to satisfy that constraint and you need to guarantee that you can satisfy that constraint. So that particular paper was focused on guaranteeing a satisfaction of hard constraints, even in the context of deep learning based approximations. Yeah, and deep learning approximations are usually fairly black boxy. So it's very hard to, <laughs> to ensure something is actually true. Exactly. So that's great. Now, when I think about climate change myself, and I imagine many other people will be similar, is that it's a big problem, but it feels like 
it's hard to do to actually make change. It's like I'm just one person. How am I going to make change? And I'm kind of curious. What is your thinking on that? Because clearly you're dedicating your career to this and how you can also maybe encourage others to be more optimistic about the ability to make change on their own in, in a kind of big, impactful way. So there are lots of ways to have an impact on climate change. And AI is not used in isolation when it is being used. One of the most important things to remember is that it's a powerful tool, but obviously it's not a silver bullet. And so we're not going to magically solve climate change with, with AI, machine learning, or anything else. Machine learning is useful when it's well-matched to existing bottlenecks in policy, energy, land use, or, or other areas. And change happens when different people come together. Collaboration is essential. Experts in machine learning and relevant application areas and also stakeholders who will be using or affected by technologies. This is really essential to avoid pitfalls and ensure a pathway to meaningful impact. As with other areas of applied machine learning, domain-specific knowledge is, is generally really essential. There are always constraints and contextual information that aren't just captured in the data. And it's really important to consider also how something's going to be used to build in any deployment considerations right from the start. More broadly, one doesn't have to be working in AI or machine learning to make a difference on, in climate change. It's not the most powerful tool that we have. I'm working on climate change as an AI practitioner because that is the tool that I have, and it's a powerful one. But I'm not here to say that people should be working, if they aren't computer scientists, on AI. Go work on policy, go work on energy, go work on any number of areas. We need all hands on deck for climate change. Yeah. Now, of all things, you're currently working on, in one of your projects, on identifying butterflies. Why is that? <laughs> so I told you I liked insects, right? It turns out that ecological monitoring is a massive opportunity for AI and machine learning and something where there are enormous implications both for sustainability more broadly and specifically in, in climate change. So gathering data on ecosystems and how ecosystems are changing is something that is currently done by people, which is, in some sense, it has to be done by individuals who are out in the field. But there are all kinds of ways to help that system contribute to scientific knowledge. And that particular paper that you referenced is focused on providing tools for citizen scientists who are not always experts to actually be out in the field collecting information about individual species. We also work on automated systems, so sensors that you can put out in the field that will attract insects, in this case moths. Fun fact, one-tenth of all species of anything are moths, including plants, including bacteria. So if you're studying moths, you're getting a very good idea of how healthy an ecosystem is. So this system attracts moths and automatically identifies them using computer vision. It's a very hard computer vision problem because it's really, really fine-grained, all those species of moths. So this is, this is one of the sets of, of projects that we work on in biodiversity monitoring to really have a sense of how ecosystems are changing. Also, there are a lot of co-benefits like understanding pollinator distributions and understanding how, how particular species that people may especially care about are, are being affected by climate change and other human interventions. 
No, that's so interesting. So you're getting early signal there. If something's happening in a certain region, you would know it likely before others by seeing a change in diversity of the moth population. Is that right? Yeah, there really isn't nearly enough data. There aren't enough people out there with, with relevant expertise to gather all the information that we need on, on how the planet's changing. So augmenting scientific experts and, and amateur scientists with technology, having all these pieces working together is, is really important. So David, you recently organized an event on AI at the United Nations Climate Change Conference. What's the global perspective that you experienced there on the intersection of AI and climate change? So Climate Change AI organized events at the last UN Climate Change Conference, which is called the COP, the Conference of Parties. That was two years ago. And we're also organizing several events this year, the COP, which is starting in a couple of weeks. We're also working on a number of different global policy-related initiatives. So for example, we authored a report that will hopefully be released soon with the Global Partnership on AI, GPAY, on the Center for AI and Climate, focused on shaping international and national policies uh, related to, to the intersection of AI and climate change and how governments and policymakers can better facilitate meaningful work at this intersection. Now, there are a lot of challenges associated with, with global action at this intersection, and there are obviously innumerable priorities for, for global policy on climate change, which do not all relate to AI. The opportunities and challenges for policymakers are in ensuring meaningful pathways to deployment in terms of capacity building within existing institutions, in terms of facilitating integration into slow-moving industries that often are resistant to change. And there are a lot of considerations to bear in mind with respect to global adoption of, of different technologies, including a huge number of equity considerations. So who is empowered to build solutions, what problems are being prioritized, and how these problems are being worked on. And obviously empowering a, a global set of stakeholders to shape the intersection of machine learning and climate change is essential to ensuring that the technologies are owned by the people that are affected by them and don't reinforce existing power imbalances across countries and institutions. Related to the question of who is the question of, of what's being worked on, since often problem priorities are going to reflect inequities that already exist within technology, and those can also involve geographic boundaries and considerations. So for example, I'm seeing a lot of interest in ML for fighting wildfires, which is obviously a problem that's particularly relevant here in North America, in Europe, um, and in Australia. And that often receives more attention and funding than machine learning for fighting locusts, which is a problem that's particularly relevant in East Africa and the Middle East and in India. And both of these problems are extremely important. Both are being exacerbated by climate change. And I, I would like to see more attention given to both of these problems. But definitely there are some of these inequities in sort of who's framing problems and what occurs to the people who are framing the problems. And then also finally, how projects are being worked on is important when one's considering global implementation of AI and climate strategies. Data imbalances between regions or between communities even within a single region can mean that machine learning isn't applicable to the entire population. It's only applicable to some, to some subset. Or that the algorithms are most effective within the data-rich regions. 
So really, ideally, AI for Climate would serve to improve equity, but this takes active work both at a high level, including policy, and at a low level, including project management. I'm kind of curious as you think about these problems, you're a machine learning researcher, originally at least, by, by training, and from there look at AI. Now, to which extent do you feel like you want to stay in machine learning and really focus on that versus spend you know, more and more of your time possibly on, on the non-machine learning aspects to affect change? Ultimately, I feel like the greatest leverage that I personally and members of my team will have is via machine learning innovations driven by climate-relevant problems. And there are so many opportunities to push the envelope from a machine learning perspective, but motivated by problems that are impactful for society. So that's really the niche that I, that I see for, for myself. I think that everyone, when one's working on a problem that is driven by societal impact, needs to start out with the simplest possible methodology, the simplest possible technologies. But one can pick problems where one thinks that those won't be enough and that one will need more sophisticated tools. So that's what we try to do in my group. I try to pick problems where I think that we will need significant innovation, but we still start out with the most basic possible techniques because the most basic techniques are always the best if you can use them, but in some cases you will need really groundbreaking technologies. Now, as we're reflecting here on the research a bit more, what do you think are some of the maybe easiest starting points for a machine learning researcher if they say, this is what I want to do. Most machine learning problems tied to either data sets or simulators, and I imagine this, the same is true here. What are some great data sets or simulators for people to look at and just kind of dive in and, and try to make something happen? So we try to provide a lot of resources for people who are getting started at the, the Climate Change AI website, so I encourage you to check that out. I would say that I would caution against just diving into a data set, except as a sort of way to get your feet wet, because most data sets that are really well-structured are ones that have in some sense been picked clean. Most problems that are most meaningful require interfacing with people in a relevant community, understanding what the data means, potentially working to structure new data or work with stakeholders who haven't necessarily made their data available yet. So in many situations, the most impactful areas of exploration don't involve sort of a, a single percent improvement on an existing data set, but they involve integrating existing data with domain knowledge and with other considerations, which are sort of not nicely packaged in the way that we're used to in the context of pure machine learning. But I highly recommend getting your feet wet, exploring some of the, the many, many wonderful data sets out there. And there are a lot of things to do just by looking at public data that has just not been explored well enough. Now, that really resonates. You want to have impact. You want to be engaged with the stakeholders. I couldn't agree more. On the flip side, I'm thinking for most, let's say, PhD students who are looking to get their feet wet and working on something, that probably feels like an almost insurmountable barrier. I'm not saying it has to be, but it likely feels like that. And I'm curious, what do you recommend? Yeah, I would recommend first just reading a lot and trying things. But 
ultimately, I think that my advice for students is to learn about a specific area and become really well-versed in that area. Become an expert in machine learning and power systems or ML and infrastructure. We really need people at the intersection of fields, and there aren't nearly enough who can innovate in machine learning, but really understand the technical language in another area. That's holding back both machine learning and those other areas. People who can speak different languages and cross boundaries, who can understand both the the real opportunities for impact in an area and the potential mechanisms for solving them. There are so many different particular problems and areas that one can focus on, and I encourage you to consider delving into one because that will yield really significant benefits for society and also for for machine learning. So David, of course, at the risk of leaving some important ones out, could you list maybe some of those areas that come to your mind as this is like a good area to maybe become an expert in and combine that with your machine learning expertise? Absolutely. So at a very high level, there are fields like electricity systems and transportation and heavy industry, buildings and and cities and urban planning, disaster response, all kinds of applications in societal adaptation, like understanding biodiversity and ecosystem change, climate science, which is, again, the science of the climate itself and related earth systems. So these are overall headings. But within those, there are so many different avenues for for impact. I encourage you to check out the Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning paper because we really did try to provide a taxonomy of particularly high leverage areas for work, but there are dozens of them. So if you're interested in that, go check out the paper or the Climate Change AI website where we have interactive summaries where you can actually search by particular machine learning techniques. You know, say, I am an expert in computer vision or I am an expert in NLP and I'd like to see where my areas of expertise can be most relevant. Oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful. I think a lot of people love to leverage their existing expertise and, and find a way to, to help out. There's another angle to climate and machine learning, which is also often talked about, which is in the somewhat other direction, you know, might machine learning in some sense push the amount of power that we want to use, generate, and hence actually possibly accelerate climate change inadvertently. I'm curious about your thinking on that. Is, is that something that's already happening that we should be worried about? What are the, the concerns there? Yeah, some machine learning models definitely use a lot of energy to train and run, in particular very large models that are used, for example, in NLP and in various corporate applications. And this is definitely something the field should consider as one factor when both when deciding what models to use and also how important small incremental improvements over state-of-the-art really are. So it's in some sense a cultural question that we can ask ourselves. However, I also feel that the discussion of energy use can divert attention from another problem, which is the way that many applications of machine learning can have negative consequences for climate change. It's not just in, in energy use. For example, machine learning is being used extensively to accelerate oil and gas exploration. The, the World Economic Forum has estimated that the oil and gas industry is going to make $425 billion more by 2025, thanks to machine learning and advanced analytics. That is definitively making climate change worse to be accelerating oil and gas discovery and extraction. Machine learning is also being used very widely in advertising systems, which almost definitely increase society's consumption of resources. And these kinds of applications of machine learning are definitely having a significant effect on climate change. It's just harder to measure 
So in these cases, the energy use of the algorithms themselves is clearly a drop in the bucket. We don't want to have the equivalent of humanely manufactured machine guns, right? The thing you're doing is hurting the climate, but using a little bit less energy is, is not really relevant in those cases. And on that note, it's, it's really it's important to remember that the implicit choices that we are making as technologists have the potential to change the impact of a new technology. For example, self-driving cars make climate change worse. They definitely have other benefits like safety, which are extremely significant. But from a climate change perspective, if we design autonomous vehicles with a focus on personal cars, then driving will become easier, people will probably drive more, and global carbon emissions may increase from that, even if each mile driven becomes a little bit more efficient. On the other hand, developing AV technology with a view to vehicle sharing and public transportation could decrease carbon emissions. Now, I'm not here to, to bash AVs. I'm, this is an illustration that just what all of us are doing through our work is affecting climate change. And the choices that we're making, both implicitly and explicitly, are meaningful. And AI for good isn't about sort of adding on new societally beneficial applications on top of business as usual. It really means a lot of subtle choices to better align our work with societal goals in lots of different ways. David, I'm kind of curious when you take a step back and you think about the future of our climate, how optimistic are you? It's, it's a great question and one that I get asked a lot. I guess two things. First of all, since I started working more directly on climate change, I am not as stressed about climate change anymore. I'm stressed about other things. I'm stressed about other societal problems. But I'm not nearly as stressed about climate change. So something to bear in mind for anybody who's really stressed about something, if you work on that thing, you start being stressed about the other things, but not about that thing. Because... You're doing your bit if, you are, if you're working more directly on it. But also, climate change isn't an on-off switch. If I had to pick, is, are we going to solve climate change? Are we doomed or not? Then yes, I would say yes. Climate change is already killing many people, and it's already going to kill many more regardless of what we do now. We are locked into some of the effects. But we have the decision to make how bad it's going to be. It's not an on-off switch. It depends on the choices that we make now, just how terrible the effects are. And everything that we can do now is going to have an impact. So in that sense, I'm optimistic that we can, and every one of us can, have an impact on climate change. It's, it's interesting because what I'm hearing is you're saying, yes, things are going to be bad, but actually we can make it less bad. <laughs> we can make it less bad. We can't make it good, but we can make it less bad. And, uh, and, and you're calling that being optimistic. That's, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting phrasing. <laughs> you're optimistic about our ability to do something, I guess, to have some influence, but, but not optimistic about being able to you know, truly solve it. Yeah, I mean, humanity has already seriously impacted the world in many ways that are irreversible than certainly within the time span of society. Most tropical coral reefs are, for example, doomed to disappear regardless of what we do now. We've already affected the climate in, in various irreversible ways, you know, various kinds of ecosystem destruction. Similarly, that's not necessarily a climate effect, but all the ecosystem services that depend upon global fisheries, for example. We've done a lot of things that are ultimately irreversible, at least in a short-ish time span, but we get to choose how bad things become, or, or you, know, you can say also how good things are, because a lot, of, a lot of what we've done has also made life better for many people. Now, when you take an even further step back and take like a first principles look at things, 
We're using energy and our consumption of traditional source of energy is the problem. Do you think green energies can cover everything, maybe with the right machine learning tools and so forth to make that all work? Yes, we have the technologies to use renewable and zero or low carbon energy for our energy needs across society. But we also do have to reduce the amount of energy that is being required by society. So it takes both. There are a lot of parallel efforts that have to go on. And also, it's not as simple as saying that we have the technology to produce energy in a low carbon way. There are also various, you know, one of the reasons why machine learning can be useful in this kind of situation is because it can help boost adoption or mitigate bottlenecks to adoption of technologies. Like, for example, if you don't have a sense of exactly how much power is going to be generated by a solar panel or a wind turbine, these are variable sources of, of electricity, then how do you know that you're going to match supply? What happens currently is electrical grids have fossil fuel turbines running as backup generators in case the sun goes behind a cloud or the wind stops blowing. If we have better forecasts, then both supply and demand, then we don't have to do that as much. That kind of situation is really is, you know, to try to move us towards full adoption of, of green energy. There are a lot of smaller things that are needed. It's not just building a better solar panel, though that is definitely useful. So let's see, David, this is it actually. We, we covered everything we wanted to cover. It was so nice to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure and I really enjoyed the discussion. Same here. Absolutely my pleasure.